Let me pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would teach us, that you would shape us, that you would correct us, comfort us, and hold us close to you. Give us the ears now to hear the good news of the gospel and the faith to repent and believe in it. Open our eyes to see and behold the wonderful things that we have in your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue our series looking at the book of Exodus, and we come, as we've just read, to Exodus chapter 12. This morning, we're going to have a look at this 12th plague, and indeed, um, cast a vision for what those previous plagues also might have meant for God's people and for the Israelites, for the uh, Egyptians. Well, it's true that one of the best and the worst things of life is watching, waiting and watching. We actually spend a lot of our lives doing that, and some of the best moments of our lives are watching. We're watching the plane land as we're anticipating our loved one come home. We're watching for friends to come over. We're watching a grandchild or a child take their first steps. And so watching can have this really beautiful um, element to it. But as we know, watching also can, well, watching something can be terrible. Watching someone drive out from the house and not knowing when they will return watching that, ta- that plane take off and knowing that loved one is going a long way away, watching someone that you care for make poor decisions and realising there's not much you can do. This passage that we have from Exodus chapter 12 is about watching. You see there in verse 42, if you want to open up to Exodus chapter 12, you see there in verse 42... The Passover night, the night of the Exodus, the actual leaving of Egypt was a night of, verse 42, a night of watching by the Lord. So however else we might want to think about the Exodus, and indeed Exodus chapter 12, it was a night above all of the Lord watching out watching out for his people and watching over his people. You remember a time where you've just been brought to the very real realisation that God has been watching over your life. I remember when I was at university, I'd been up very late doing an assignment. I was driving in a home uh, about 3 a.m., I was extraordinarily tired. And as I went through an intersection, I realised that it wasn't a green light that I was going through, it was a red light. And I hit the brakes and my car kind of stopped in the middle of that intersection. And 20 seconds later, as I was just kind of bringing myself to realisation, the car just came around the corner and went around me as I was there in the middle of that intersection. There are moments of our lives when 
it's quite obvious to us. We've got a deep sense that, that God is indeed watching over us, that he has arranged our lives, that he is looking after us, that we see kind of the many miracles that he's done in our lives. But sometimes it's through the things that don't go as we expect that God also teaches us that he's watching over us. Passover night, unlike any other night, was a night where the Lord was watching. He was watching over his people. The whole Exodus really is one example after another of God's watchful care. And we see that particularly in this passage. What we're going to see this morning is really God watching. We're going to see it in a number of ways. We're going to see God watching as he judges the Egyptians. We're going to see God watching as he humiliates Pharaoh. We're going to see God watching as he kicks his people out. We're going to see God watching as they plunder the Egyptians. And we're going to see God watching with a mixed multitude. So firstly, God watching, judging the Egyptians. By the time we get to Exodus chapter 12, the victory over Egypt is devastating and relentless. Ten plagues, one after another, have come. Now, finally, after 400 years of oppression, God's people can see that light at the end of the tunnel. God's people had come to Egypt in a famine with Jacob and his sons when Joseph was in charge. And they had lived for some years before this new Pharaoh has come. But now they've been wailing, crying out to God as slaves for a long time, hundreds of years. And the wailing that they did as slaves back in Exodus 3 is the same word that's used here in Exodus chapter 12, where the Egyptians now are wailing there in verse 30. They're the ones who are crying because God has shown something. The Lord is in charge and not Pharaoh. That Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the Egyptian gods throughout these plagues have been shown to, well, to come to nothing. They are less than nothing. They're gods, as we saw last week, have this central purpose to provide fertility, life, good crops, rain, and safe passage after death. And now because of these plagues, we see that their gods, well, their gods are completely undermined. Their gods that they have placed so much trust in are powerless when it's a river that's full of blood, when there's darkness, hail, boils, and let alone death itself in this tenth plague. These Egyptian gods, these so-called deities, are the opposite of being mighty to save. They're pathetic nothings. And God, as he's visited Egypt, as he's brought judgment, he has shown that these gods are impotent to save. Here we have, after its announcement, the actual twelfth plague. And this twelfth plague here in Exodus chapter 12 is first announced 
back in Exodus chapter 11. And you have to imagine what it would have been like for the Egyptians to perhaps heard of something like this. I mean, they'd lived through, I mean, we've lived through a pandemic, perhaps a couple of pandemics. But, you know, imagine living through nine devastating plagues. And now perhaps there's word that there's a worse plague coming. Perhaps some Egyptians don't believe it. They're not going to, you know, bother putting blood on their doorposts. What would that do? Or maybe they are kind of worried. They're fearful, perhaps. They're wondering what will come this next day. Well, as one writer puts it, he says this, from the palace to the pits, there was no escaping God's judgment. Judgment upon Egypt for 400 years of oppression. And judgment on Pharaoh and his people for the slaughter of the innocents. What we're reminded of here as God brings judgment upon the whole of Egypt, from, as that writer says, from the palace to the pits, what we're reminded of is God shows no partiality. When it comes to judgment, and when it comes to the judgment that God will bring, our position, our privilege, whatever we think that might be or not, it won't save you. When it comes to the judgment of God, he won't spare us because we're wealthy, nor will he he spare us because we are destitute either. I think sometimes the way that we function as humans, we're prone to think, well, you know, either I'm the kind of, I'm the important kind of person that that really God would, you know, give a decent hearing to. And others perhaps attempted to think, well, you know, my, my life's been an unremitting failure and I've, you know, struggled with all these things and so because of that, God's going to cut me a break. No. From the palace to the pits... God shows no partiality when it comes to his judgment. We will not pass through the night safe and secure because of our bank account, because of our achievements, the degrees that we have hanging on our wall. Nor will we pass through safe and secure because we have struggled or we have suffered. No one is safe, we're reminded of in Exodus chapter 12, without the blood. And as the angel that passed through the camp of the Israelites, as he came, and as that angel came, only there did he find what he was looking for. He was not looking for people who were good enough to earn God's favour, He was not looking for people who had suffered and who had tried very hard. He was not looking for people who had done a pretty good job. He was looking for one thing. He was looking for the blood. And not just the sign of the blood, but of what it represented. The faith to put your trust in a substitute. 
Anyone could smear their doors, but it took faith to hear what God said, to take him at his word and to do as he commanded and say, my only hope to be spared from death this night is to have one die in my place, to have that substitute hang over my household. And in one sense, I think we're reminded of the words of Luke chapter 18, verse 8, where it says, I tell you, he will give justice, justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When the angel of the Lord passes through the camp, will he find blood on the doorposts? And so we have to ask ourselves the question, when Christ returns, will he find what he is looking for? Only the blood and only his blood will save us. Because God shows no partiality. Secondly, we see God watching in the way in which Pharaoh is humiliated. Pharaoh is thoroughly overwhelmed and in Exodus chapter 12 is brought to nothing. Back in Exodus 5, he said to Moses, Who is this Lord? I don't even know who your God is. Now if you look in Exodus chapter 12, verse 31, hear what he's saying? Go. Go to this God. Go to this Lord and worship him. Pharaoh is in this place of total surrender. With no negotiation, the man who refused nine times to let them go now says, up, go, get out of here. And if you think about it, for all of Pharaoh's hardness of heart, what did it gain him? What did it gain him? It gained him nothing. Philippians chapter 2 verse 10 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The reality is one day, eventually, at the cosmic 12th plague, everyone will see it. Everyone will know that the gods of this world, the things that we and our society places so much trust in, will be brought to nothing. They will look pathetic on the day when the Lord Jesus returns. And when he returns, for some it will be a great day of rejoicing. And for others it will be a day of profound regret and loss as it is here for Pharaoh. The high and mighty here are reduced to begging and pleading. And it's a great reminder for us. We as Christian people often feel as though we're up against it. The powers of this world the influential, a society that seems so often against us. And yet we need to be reminded of the example that Pharaoh is for one day when the Lord Jesus returns. What we know now will be known universally, cosmically, 
and eternal. There in verse 32, we read, Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go, and also bless me. Pharaoh seeks the blessing now from God's people, from oppressing them and killing them. He's reduced to this point of requesting a blessing. I don't think this is a genuine repentance on Pharaoh's behalf, but it does indicate that there is a place for which he has um, been wrought, a place, a place of perhaps brokenness, really, than repentance. And it's a reminder to us, no matter how long you hold out, no matter how hard your heart is, how much you raise your fist at God, God gets his way, and he will get his way in the end. What did all of Pharaoh's wrangling and hardness of heart gain him? Nothing. And it's as if we've come full circle. It was back in Genesis chapter 47, um, when Joseph is second in command there, where <coughs> we read in Genesis chapter 47, verse 7, that the Pharaoh asked to be blessed back in Genesis. And they provided a blessing for him. And now, 430 years later, Pharaoh, another Pharaoh, again says, I want a blessing. We had a Pharaoh at the beginning when God's people were in Egypt who at least recognised the God of the Israelites. But now, this Pharaoh has been brought to nothing. Thirdly, we see God <clears throat> watching as he kicks out his people. The Egyptian people have not been as stubborn as Pharaoh. There in verse 33, they are urgent with the people of Israel. They say, send them out. And wouldn't you be too? Leave, they say. Go, get out of here. Take whatever you want. Just go. There's a sense in which they feel like the presence of the, Egypt, of the Israelites he is ruining their lives. And you see the language later on there in verse 39, it says, interestingly, that they were, this is God's people, they were thrust, they were kicked out, perhaps is another translation, they were thrust out of Egypt. And we might wonder how this is a mercy to God's people. It was not that they got up one day and said, you know, we're going. That's not what verse 39 says. Verse 39 reminds us that the Egyptians were forcibly expelling them, kicking them out. And that's, it's really a strange way of putting it. It's not kind of normally a way in which we, you know, we think of, you know, just bound people and God's released the shackles and they're running out of the prison. That's not the language here in uh, Exodus chapter 12. Of course, God did rescue his people. And it was a testimony to his mercy, but the manner in which they actually are delivered is important here. Because it was an act of God's mercy to kick them out, to thrust them out, to expel them from the land of Egypt. Because God knew that Pharaoh wasn't the only one 
who could have a stubborn heart. He knew that the people too, he, the people that he was rescuing too, could be pretty stubborn. Later on, we'll read in the Exodus account of the regret, even as God is rescuing His people, that they have. They want to go back to Egypt because they think it's better than being out in the middle of the desert. And so, we see here that the Exodus is not necessarily just people wanting to be free. It's God being involved in freeing them and actually ejecting them uh, from the slavery. I think he knew, I think God knew that it would be difficult to leave the home that they had lived in for 400 years. They were slaves in Egypt, but it was their home. It's where they lived. It was the life that they knew. And so God knew that the only way to get them out, I think, was to kick them out. Was to bring them by his merciful hand into a better place. And it's a great reminder to us as well that often when God is at work in our lives, it's not necessarily because we're inviting him to be at work in our lives. It's often that God comes into our lives and does the kinds of things and brings us into places that are not the product of our planning, of our wisdom and of our decision. We find ourselves growing in the love of the Lord Jesus. We find ourselves increasing our reading of the scriptures and loving coming to him in prayer. And it's often because, well, we have made a decision that, yes, I want to pray more, and yes, I would like to read my Bible more, but it's often that God's Spirit is at work in pushing us as much as we are deciding to do it. Fourthly, we see God watching as the Egyptians are plundering. And we see this in verse 35. Um, sometimes the accusations made, well, you know, aren't God's people stealing from the Egyptians? Well, it's pretty clear there in verse 36, the Lord had made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for. So it's not that they were stealing. They didn't go in the middle of the night and raid the Egyptians. The picture here is of a conquering army, an army that is leaving with the spoils of war. In fact, it's already been stated several times that the Israelites were referred to as my hosts or the Lord's hosts, the Lord's army could be translated, his battle soldiers, the Lord's regiment. And here they are now with the spoils of their victory, heading out as this victorious army. To the victor, go the spoils. And this was one of the ways in which God was looking after and caring for his people before they set out on their journey. They didn't have the provisions to survive in the wilderness, but they didn't need it either. Lastly, uh, we see God watching with a mixed multitude. You see that? Language there in verse 38. Have you noticed it? 
before. It's actually one of the great things about reading this account in some detail. There in verse 38, a mixed multitude also went out with them. In the Exodus, there were some non-Israelites heading out with the Israelites. And there's a different expression that's used to similar effect in Numbers chapter 11, verse 14. The rabble is how the ESV translates it. The rabble, I think, means, as we might think, it's the hangers on us who are part of it as well. The people who were on the outskirts. And most scholars think that this is a reference to foreigners, this mixed multitude joining God's people. Somehow, in the midst of all these plagues, there were some Egyptians, perhaps, perhaps other nationalities, who were joined in this moment of salvation, who, like Ruth, say, where you go, I will go. This God of the Hebrews, he is the God that's worth following. And so they set out that very day with God's people. They came out as God's people came out 430 years later, it says there in verse 42, it was a night that the Lord was watching. The Lord has been watching his people for 430 years and now is this moment when the reality of that salvation has come. It's come to his people. For the Israelites, it meant then that they would annually commemorate this moment of being rescued in the Passover. This Passover was a symbol of their trust in him. It was a reminder that God had been watching and waiting. And they too now would remember the Passover. God had been watching over them, and now in the Passover they were to watch for him. And here is the reality for us. We're reminded here in Exodus 12 that God does watch over us. He watches over us. And in some ways, we know that truth. But in many ways, it's a truth that's hard to believe. And well, hard to trust all the time because there's no app or message for us about what God is going to do tomorrow or next week or next month. So we're the ones who are left watching. And watching is hard because we don't know what God will do. But God calls us to watch because we have already seen what he has done. And we can see this even as we look back in our own lives about how God has been at work in our lives. And we look back, most importantly, at these stories in the book of Exodus, where God was there, where for 400 years, for the Israelites, it didn't feel like God was there. It felt like slavery. It felt like oppression. It felt like the gods of the Egyptians were in control, but they were to wait and they were to watch. And we are too. 
We had a watch, even though we don't know what's coming tomorrow, or what's coming next week, or next month, or next year. We're to watch and wait, not because we know what he will do, but because we know what he has done. So this morning, we want to ask ourselves the question, will we trust the Good Shepherd, keeping watch over his flock by night? Will we trust that he is watching over us? Will we keep watching and waiting, trusting that he knows each sheep by name, that he hasn't forgotten, that he is not absent, that he is listening, and that the gods of this world, the powers that surround us, will one day be brought to nothing. We're reminded that he can, he cares, and he will in time have his way. And he's watching over us. Let's pray. Dear Big Father, thank you that you care for us in mercy and kindness and that you watch over us. We pray that we would know and have the confidence to wait and wait in hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.